You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Dan, have you ever walked down the street? I feel like you're going somewhere with this. What kind of question is that, Michael? (laughs) This isn't like an existential, like how many roads must a man walk down before you call him a man? But literally, have you ever walked down the street on a sidewalk in particular? Yes. And as I've mentioned before on this podcast, I'm on the traffic safety commission. And so pedestrian issues are uh, for my city. And so pedestrian issues are really important to me. And so, yeah, I often... I've not only walked down sidewalks, Michael, I constantly think about how these sidewalks could be safer and how they could interact with the traffic that's flowing by. And so, yeah, I've thought about it quite a bit. This is perfect then. Do you ever, like, when you walk to a a curb, you see that most of them are cut out, right? Like Mm -hmm. there's like a, a thing. So this way it's easier for people in wheelchairs to go down it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So while that's designed for uh, people on wheelchairs, a lot of other people use them quite a bit. I was with my niece the other day and she was, you know, a little child, small child, and she's riding on her bicycle. And this way, she it was so easy for her to get on and off the sidewalk because of those. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, uh, many professors who are leaving campus often um, leave with giant wheel almost like wheelbarrows of papers and books and stuff. And so it's nice for them too, right? To be able to easily get those up and not have to like pull them up over a curb. Yeah. In your experience, have you um, on the board, is that the type of things that you talk about? Yeah, we do sometimes. We recently had a case um, on on campus actually that um, when I got onto the traffic safety commission, there's a, there's a place between two major buildings on campus where everyone crosses a road but there's actually a median in the middle. And so people with wheelchairs couldn't cross in that space. They have to like go down a block and it's really, really inconvenient and doesn't make sense. And so when I got on the board, I wanted to push to get, you know, a real crosswalk there with curb cutouts that allow everyone to easily access it. And that would be beneficial, I think, for everybody. And so, yeah, those things I think come up a lot. So this is actually all stems from the Architectural Barriers Act from 1968. I did Mm. some research before this. I'm still trying to figure out where this is all going. What are we talking about today, Michael? We actually have a a tremendous uh, guest today to talk about special education. Uh, Her name is Kathleen Kaiser. Welcome to the podcast, Kathleen. I'm sure you're going to fill us in more on sidewalks, huh? Thank you. I'll try. (laughs) Have have you also walked down sidewalks in your life? I have, yes. I have also, let's see, what are some other connections to, I think, what you're talking about, used a stroller. Oh, where yeah. I have needed a ramp or crutches. I sprained my ankle one time and I used that ramp as well. So in a little bit here, you're going to talk to us about special education. Part of what we were getting at with our walking metaphor and, and sidewalk metaphor was to talk about the different types of accommodations or modifications, things that you can do to make an environment uh, more suitable for everyone. I don't know if that worked or not, but <laughs> we gave it a shot. Yeah. That was good. So Kathleen, can you tell us a little bit about your background in education? Yeah, well, first of all, thank you for having me. I am a native Texan. 
And my background in education is I started out in the field of deaf ed with my undergraduate and master's degrees are in um, deaf education. And I worked here in Texas in an urban district in the north part of the state as a deaf education itinerant teacher. So kind of in the special education field, you'll hear people refer to students who have high incidence disabilities or students who have low incidence disabilities, high incidence disabilities being disabilities that occur often, more often, in all disabilities in K-12 schools are really only about 11 to 13% of the population, but about half of those students have learning disabilities, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, those are high incidence disabilities. I worked with students with low incidence disabilities. These are disabilities that don't happen very often. Students with hearing loss often have additional disabilities as well, uh, physical disabilities, intellectual disabilities, learning disabilities, et cetera, so they have multiple disabilities. But when you have kids who don't have in districts that have disabilities that don't happen very often, the district often doesn't hire their own teacher because they don't have very many students. So itinerant teachers work for like a cooperative and we go out and serve students in multiple districts and multiple campuses. So that's what I did when I worked as a practitioner. And I also worked a lot with young children with hearing loss with their families in their homes. So right after they were identified with hearing loss in Um, Almost every hospital in the United States now, we have uh, universal newborn hearing screening. So families know right away within the goal is within six months, there's intervention in the home. So that work actually informed a lot of what I do today, which my interest is mostly in terms of research and also teaching in the area of family and professional partnerships. So I'm interested in how can families and educators work together to benefit the student. What type of intervention would you do in the home with the six months old? With young children with hearing loss, kind of the main goal is to work with the family on language and communication strategies. The research indicates, I'm not sure how familiar you or your listeners are with the field of deaf education, but there's always been a controversy in our country about whether you sign or whether you don't sign with young children. And the Joint Committee on Infant Hearing, which is kind of the authoritative source at this point, has looked at all of the research. This is a diverse group of stakeholders, audiologists, people on both sides, basically. And they've said that really there is no one way that's right. It's just the important thing is to get in and make a decision and work with kids. So I would work with families on sign language, on oral methods, but mostly the idea with these services, they're referred to nationally as early intervention services, and they're actually part of special education. So we typically think of special education as K-12 or pre-K-12, ages when kids are in preschool, they're getting school services, they're having IEPs, or in Texas, they're referred to as ARD meetings. Early intervention is actually under that same law. So it is special education, and it serves infants and toddlers birth to two. And there's a coordinated system that goes from early intervention services to special ed in schools, and it's all mandated under the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. So in early intervention, a quick answer to your question is often practitioners are working with the family rather than directly with the child, because when they're that young and you're in a home for about 45 minutes to an hour a week, your impact cannot be as much working directly with the child while the parent's talking on the phone or washing the dishes and you're in the living room with the kid, as opposed to the parents right there with you, you're teaching the parent the strategies and the parent follows through with those strategies the entire week so that when you come back next week, you follow up. And so what are you up to today? What is your uh, role today? 
So my area is, I think I would define it as early childhood special education. I have a lot of experience with very young children with disabilities and their families. So I teach a course at Texas Christian University on family and professional partnerships. I also teach an introduction to early childhood course. And my research is with families of kids with deaf blindness kind of building on the special education and deaf education field. But again, mostly I'm interested in how can parents or families rather and teachers or educators, any educator partner, what is that relationship and how can they work together? Because we know there's no eight hour kid, right? They don't go to school and then come back to school the next day. There's a family piece too. And there's a lot of issues in this field that I think we need to work through. So Kathleen, we brought you on today to kind of give us a little bit of an overview about just the field of special education. Um, I think a lot of general education teachers in the classrooms could really use a review. Oftentimes, I know I felt that way when I was teaching, but also, you know, parents and pre-service teachers and other people probably could too. So could you kind of walk us through the development where special education first made its appearance in the United States and how we got to where we are? Sure. I think that that's a great place to start is just to start with how did it how did special ed start? It grew out of the civil rights movement in the 60s and the law that is special education kind of it's synonymous. We don't typically refer to special education as the name of the law. Sometimes people recognize it when it's said, but it's basically the same thing and it's the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act and it was most recently reauthorized in 2004. It's commonly referred to as IDEA. It was reauthorized in 2004 after the reauthorization of the Elementary and Secondary Education Act in 2001 as No Child Left Behind. And so IDEA always follows ESEA. So now we have a new, we have a reauthorization of ESEA as ESSA, so we can expect a new reauthorization of IDEA as well. And it was first enacted in 1975, and it was referred to as the Education for All Handicapped Children Act. It is rooted in anti-discrimination. It is an anti-discrimination law. First of all, let me say it provides positive rights. So it's an anti-discrimination law that provides positive rights. There are anti-discrimination laws for people with disabilities that provide negative rights, such as I think what you're referring to earlier, the um, Americans with Disabilities Act. Um, That's the right not to be discriminated against. That's a negative right. So IDEA provides a positive right, and the right that it provides is a free and appropriate public education, often referred to as FAPE. Let's see. Uh, in 19, prior to 1975, I think the major problem was that children with disabilities or students with disabilities were often either physically excluded from public school, that is, schools could turn them away. They could say, we don't have the expertise to teach your child or the resources to teach your child, or they could have been functionally excluded. They could go to school, but the students might not benefit from their education. So, This major principle of IDEA is referred to as zebra reject, and it means that schools cannot reject any student from a free and appropriate public education. And as simple as it sounds, it's a really, really important principle. You might have heard that children with low incidence disabilities, such as physical disabilities or intellectual disabilities, were often institutionalized prior to 1975. You know, we still have to work very hard today. This is not something that I think we just have turned our backs on and that, oh, institutions, oh, that happened a long time ago. We don't have to worry about that anymore. You know, we need to fight every single day for families of kids with disabilities because it's hard. You need money for equipment, for therapy, for medications, et cetera. And if we don't support families 
if we don't support them, then we're going to have a hard time. They're going to have a hard time keeping their kids in the home. So, and in their home and in their community, which is where we really want them to be. And that's something that's foreshadowing another principle I can talk about in a minute. Kathleen, can you explain to us why it's better for a student with a disability, particularly, you know, severe disability to be in a school with peers? Right. Well, kind of one of the major principles of IDEA, which again is special education, is this principle of least restrictive environment. And the law actually says, to the maximum extent appropriate, children with disabilities, including children in public or private institutions or other care facilities are educated with children who are not disabled and special classes, separate schooling or other removal of children with disabilities from the regular education environment occurs only when the nature or severity of the disability of a child is such that education in regular classes with the use of supplementary aids and services cannot be achieved satisfactorily. So, you know, this, the idea of least restrictive environment has been referred to kind of on the street. So that's kind of the law on the books term is least restrictive environment. Although people use LRE, it used to be referred to as mainstreaming, where students with disabilities would be put in the mainstream. And that term has fallen out of favor. And now we refer to LRE kind of generally as inclusion. So we want to make sure that students with disabilities are included in general education to the maximum extent possible. Why? because this goes back to a constitutional principle of least restrictive alternative. We want to make sure that we're not restricting people in any way or that students with disabilities can receive the same education that they would receive in their neighborhood school with the peers that they would be with um, had they not had a disability. Now, IDEA recognizes that some environments cannot provide the best education for students. And that's why it provides for a continuum of placement options. For example, a student, I'll go back to hearing loss as an example, a deaf or hard of hearing student who uses American Sign Language. Is the general education environment where their teachers and their peers do not use American Sign Language the most appropriate environment for them? And deafness is a bit different than other hearing people who are learning another language, who are learning English as a second language. And bilingual education is something that I cannot speak to with any level of expertise. But those students can hear and they can learn another language. A student with hearing loss, a deaf or hard of hearing student, you know, it's very hard for them to hear and then speak. So those are questions that IEP teams have to ask. What is the best placement for this student? Is it in this general education class or is it in a separate setting? So it's not that you know students with disabilities can never be removed, but what the IEP team has to do is say, first of all, let's consider this gen ed classroom. This is where the student would be. This is what we want. We want everybody to be together. When students move on, when ki- when we're in society, we don't want people segregated. When we're at restaurants, we want pe- we don't want other people at other tables, right? We want everyone should be together. So I think that's kind of the crux of it. I talk to my pre-service teachers about sometimes is that everyone benefits from spending time together. I feel like I was really cheated out of experiences in my K-12 education because I feel like students in my school were very segregated and separated. And I graduated high school without having had meaningful experiences with the diversity of people within our school. And so I think it really does benefit everyone. And looking at it as a civil right, I think is an interesting way to, to kind of understand special education in general. The opening lines of IDEA are, Congress finds that disability is part of the natural human experience. This is natural. Right. It's not unnatural. It's not 
those people. It doesn't happen to those people. It happens to humans. Um, so it's a human experience. So, and research is very clear that inclusion benefits everyone, not just students with disabilities. It, it benefits students without disabilities as well. Kathleen, can you tell us some of the other key principles of IDEA that guide special education? Yes, I can. I talked about zero reject. We've now talked about least restrictive environment or inclusion. Another major principle, and this is very, very important, is the principle of non-discriminatory evaluation. You know, when I talked about zero reject, I talked about students either being physically or functionally um, excluded from their education. Well, in order to avoid misclassifying students, so student classifying a student as having a disability when they do not, or not having a disability when they do, these are two things we want to avoid. The IEP team will have at their disposal when they sit down to meet and discuss the program for the student, a full suite of assessments to review. And it's called a full and individual evaluation. And children whose first language is not English, they must be evaluated in their native language. Assessments from outside sources, such as the student's doctor or clinicians, will be considered. Testing must be from valid and reliable sources. And the key here is that we want to make sure, especially, these are two things that the ARD or the IEP team must consider or must determine, is that the disability or the delays, the significant delays in education, is not due to learning English as a second language. So is it a disability or is it learning English as a second language? And the second thing is we want to make sure that the delays or the educational need is not due to lack of sufficient education. So let's say you have a student who is a refugee um, from another country, and in the refugee camp, that student did not have access to formal um, schooling. We can't say it's a disability, right? We, we need to make sure that we tease those things out. Now, this does not mean that students who have English as a second language don't ever have disabilities, right? But this process is important because we, you know, we want to make sure that we're not misclassifying students. Even with this process, we still have problems. We have overrepresentation of some um, racial and ethnic groups in some disability categories, and this is something that's very concerning at the federal level. One example is, and, and this is research-based, is overrepresentation of African American males in the disability category of emotional and behavioral. Um, disorders. So we know <laughs> that disabilities don't occur more frequently based on race and ethnicity. Yet in our schools, we have some students, and that's not the only example, that's just one, some students being overrepresented or underrepresented in some special education categories based on that. And so this is of, of major concern. There's lots of researchers working on this. But again, this goes back to that principle of non-discriminatory uh, non evaluation. The key to kind of, I, I talked about um, IDEA being an anti-discrimination law. I would say probably the crux of it is that IDEA is all about individualization. So we're gonna provide an individualized education program for a student because this student has a disability. One quick note too, it's not just that a student has to have a disability to qualify for special education. So a student can have a disability and not qualify. The disability has to be so significant that it's impacting that student's education. And that's another key thing that that IEP team or ARD committee needs to decide. Is this, and that's all the evaluations that they look at, is the, first of all, does the student have a disability? We have to make sure that that's in place. But then second, is the disability significantly affecting the student's education? And if it's not, and the student doesn't need special education services, there are still other protections in place. Um, you may have heard of a 504 plan 
This is another law based on anti-discrimination, and it provides for accommodations and modifications for students. But back to the appropriate education, again, I would say this is the crux. This is where we determine FAPE. This is what we're looking at is appropriate ed. It's not that students with disabilities, the courts have actually looked at kind of what is appropriate education, what, how do we measure this? The current standard is some educational benefit. So there was a court case in the 80s, Amy Rowley, she actually had a hearing loss, interestingly enough, I've talked about that several times, but this is the one that cited for that some educational benefit decision. Amy Rowley had, um, she was deaf and she was in, uh, she was included in general education and her parents wanted her to have an interpreter. But guess what? Amy Rowley's grades were fine. And it went all the way up to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court said, we don't need to provide an interpreter if she is benefiting from her education. So this is something important for, for I think, teachers to know as well. It's parents, you know, might come in and say, hey, my child is doing this great therapy and it's an outside therapy and I don't, you know, it's really expensive. I'd really like to consider this in an ARD meeting. Well, the ARD committee or the IP team can meet and discuss this, but if that child is benefiting, it doesn't mean that the school district needs to kind of come in and, and pull all these different fancy new therapies. So you mentioned 504s. And so as a classroom teacher, I have students with IEPs, the Individualized Education Plans, and I also have students on 504s. What is the difference? I've always wondered, but I've never asked. Right. So a 504 plan is actually a larger law. It's under the Rehabilitation Act of 1973. It's not designed for schools. IDEA is specific to public education. Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act of 1973 is designed to eliminate discrimination based on the handicap in any program or activity receiving federal or federal ass financial assistance. So what it does is it looks at a disability and does it affect one or more major life functions. For example, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder affects the major function of attention. Reading, writing, these are major walking. These are major life activities. And 504 comes into play whenever students need some type of accommodation or modification to ensure they're not being discriminated against in a public school setting because of their disability. Students, uh, for example, who have dyslexia, which is a type of learning disability in the state of Texas, may be eligible for 504 accommodations, um, which might give them extra time on a test. Students with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder may be eligible for a 504 plan for breaks or extended time as well. Students with, so, so there's various various reasons, but 504 is not an educate. It doesn't provide specialized instruction. I think that's the key. Whereas IDEA and specialized services actually provide specialized instruction. 504 accommodations and modifications um, is pretty much the limit. What are some of the most common and helpful accommodations and modifications that teachers can use to help students? Well, in my state, in Texas, the Texas Education Agency actually provides really helpful resources on accommodations and modifications in a list. And let me actually provide kind of a definition and the distinction for each, because sometimes they're confused. An accommodation is a change that helps students overcome or work around their disability. These are not changes in the assignment or in the overall goal. So the students taking the same test, they're doing the same project, but they, like I said, may have extended time. They may take it in a different room. They may have the test 
read to them, but it's the same test. But the or reason, they can use like a graphic organizer. Right. Or they can use it. Absolutely. So a student is doing the same work as all the other students, but because of uh, his or her disability, they just need in order for it to be an equal playing ground. And that's, again, what accommodations and modifications do. You know, there's no difference kind of an ability level based on race, based on sexual orientation, based on all of these other kind of civil rights issues. But when it comes to disability, it's a distinction that makes a difference. And I that's a quote from my advisor, Red Turnbull, um, who taught me everything I know about disability policy. But disability is a distinction that makes a difference. And so in order to, I don't know what word you want to use, if it's fairness or equality or whatever word you want to use, but in order to ensure that, accommodations and modifications have to be in place. So sometimes we even need to change the assignment. It's actually unequal treatment. Students with disabilities are getting, they have a different goal or they have a different test and that's called a modification. So a modification is a change in what's being taught or expected from the student. I like to use the term equity. In education, it's not that everyone just gets the same thing. It's that we have an eye that everyone is getting the same out of their experiences and, and can get to the same place, right? We want right. everyone to benefit from their education in the same ways, and that doesn't mean the same education for everyone. And so I think equity often speaks to not just equality, but, but keeping an eye on, on the results of our, what we do in, in schools. So what about modifications? Um, how, are modifica- how would you define in modifications, and what are some good examples? So modifications are a change in what's being taught or expected. So students might have a different test. In the state of Texas, the previous version of our state test that stems from high stakes testing from NCLB, the modified version of the state test had three answer choices, whereas the regular version of this test had four answer choices. So it was a different test. It can also be a different goal the student doesn't write the entire essay. Maybe they use the graphic organizer. You know, so there there are different expectations, essentially, for students. So is universal design meant to allow students to meet their needs in different ways? Is that the kind of general idea? Because I feel like I hear universal design as being put forth as like one of the key ways to approach special education. Yeah, so I think you did that nicely in your opening. It Universal design in the field of education is borrowed from the field of architecture. It's funny because my husband is an architect, and I was just like last week saying something about universal design, and I said, and you know, and he said, uh, yeah, I know, Kathleen. <laughs> um, See, our was opening that. was meant for something. You actually knew where you were going with that one, Michael. Uh, I did. <laughs> it's, it's an example I use when I teach, very much when you're in the gym do you ever use closed caption no when you're running on the treadmill yes caption yes that's universal design so the idea here is that we're designing the curriculum the instruction and the assessment so that it is accessible for everyone from the outset and what you find just like you find when you use closed caption at the gym even though closed caption was designed for people who have hearing loss even though you're using it when you're running on the treadmill at the gym is that you benefit So I think going back to your earlier question is how, you know, about inclusion and least restrictive environment and how does that benefit everybody and not just students with disabilities? It does. Does a graphic organizer benefit uh, students without learning disabilities? Indeed. Right. Um, So, yes. So I took a a grad class a couple of years ago and it was about inclusion. So one of the activities was for us to go around campus 
and to watch people using elements that were designed for UDL. So like the, the um, well, universal design. Mm -hmm. So most people don't push in doors, particularly when they have open hands, when there's a button there that they can yeah. just hit to walk in. And so that was our assignment. So for like a half hour, we all went out into the wilds of uh, UMass Boston and watched people, you know, using these things that were designed for universal design. Right. Yeah, that's a great activity. Yeah, there's a great center, if anyone has an interest in looking into this further, called CAST, C-A-S-T. Think of the acronym. It's Applied Special Education Technology Center for Applied Special Education Technology, I believe. But all you have to do is Google CAST, UDL or CAST, Universal Design for Learning. And there's tons of resources on this for educators. They have an amazing kind of conceptual framework. So you think about multiple ways to represent content to students, multiple ways for them to kind of engage with that content, with their learning, and then multiple ways to kind of assess them. So we're not just, everybody may not show what they know on a multiple choice, choice test or, you know, in whatever form. And I've applied this to my teaching at the university level, and I just find it's way more interesting to provide options uh, to students in how I represent the content and how they engage in their learning and how I assess them as, as an instructor as well. There's another model called differentiated instruction. I would say that UDL is more how you plan the curriculum, and differentiated instruction is a nice model for, like, this is more kind of Preventative is UDL, and differentiated instruction is kind of more useful for every day on the spot. Um, and it's a very similar model where you differentiate the content, student, you assess students' readiness level for the content, you assess their learning profiles, what motivates them, what makes them kick, right? And every student's going to come into, or, you know, um, Carolyn Tomlinson, who's kind of one of the big thinkers in differentiation, she says, that we teach humans, we don't teach content. And that's what makes teaching interesting. So everybody comes to the content with a different level of understanding. And so you need to differentiate that based on students' levels of understanding. So there's a couple of models, uh, differentiated instruction and also universal design for learning. And I think both, there's research to support both. And they both accomplish this goal of including students with multiple ability levels in the same classroom. And I think that that's really important to achieve LRE. Returning to the IDA principles, two, two principles we didn't touch on is I think this is a really important one for obviously parents is making sure that your students are actually getting the education they deserve. And so that's why we have due process safeguards and parents and students are supposed to participate in shared decision making, planning their education. Correct. Can you speak to that just a little bit? So because um, I think that's helpful for teachers to also understand the role that students and parents play. Absolutely. So parent and student participation is one of the major principles of the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. Um, these parents are, in terms of legally, <laughs> the parents that I think educators will connect with the most. Parents have the right to say no to an assessment or evaluation, full and individual evaluation for special education. The student can go all the way through the process and the parent can say, no, I don't want my student to have special education services. So parents have a lot of rights and I think that's why educators and parents, both, it's a partnership. They should both really seek to work together for the benefit of the student. There's other kind of rights that these parents have. They have the right to be on a state advisory board. They have the right to see their children's records. And then students. In most states at the age of 16, students are invited. They can be invited earlier, but they're required or 
must be invited to their IEP meetings because they're going to start a transition plan. So the student will be a part of their own programming and their own kind of plan for what happens after high school because IDEA stops at 21 or 22 whenever the student turns 22, but some students graduated 18, they go on to college and there's no special education services, um, whereas they've kind of had a lot of supports up until then. So we need to prepare students for life after high school. And that's what IDEA accounts for. And then in terms of procedural due process, IDEA, so we have talked about all of the other principles, right? Zero reject, appropriate education, non-discriminatory evaluation, least restrictive environment, parent and student participation. IDEA affords parents the right to remedy any of those rights that were wrong to them or their student. So if they didn't have those rights, they can go through the procedure, or if they think they didn't, they can go through that procedural due process to remedy those. Yes. Um, it's important to know that, uh, well, I guess, uh, not so recent data, but within the last uh, 10 years or so, that approximately a third of parents with significant, of kids with significant disabilities and approximately 15% of parents of kids with all disabilities have considered suing their district. Now, why do they just consider it? Why don't they sue their, their, the district or go through that procedural due process? Well, the courts have determined that parents have the burden of proof. So if a parent is going to make a claim that my child's not receiving FAPE under IDEA, the parent has to prove that not the district. So that requires money, time, expertise, a lot of resources that um, a lot of a lot of families don't have access to. So they might consider going all the way to that level, but they also need to be prepared with the resources to do that. So you said that the IDEA that students kind of after the age of 22 they they phase out of that. What about 504? 504 extends into the workplace um, and extends on. So 504 is not limited to um, school-age services. I think it's such an important consideration to think about how we are preparing students for life. And Kathleen, correct me if I'm wrong, but just students participating in understanding and planning their own education to the degree as possible seems like such an important component of them being able to continue advocating for themselves after they're out of school. I've always found that important because I've sat in a couple IEP meetings where it just seems like the student's being talked to and told what to do. And I'm kind of always just thinking, this is their life. And I feel like they should be talking more in this meeting about what they think about this. Absolutely. And there's a whole field of study on this within the field of special education called transition. This is, again, transition services that start in most states at age 16 and Texas at age 14. But the whole goal is to foster self-determination of students with disabilities so that they are able to advocate. Because unfortunately, that kind of safety net of special ed is, is not there. And we need to make sure they understand their disability. Oftentimes, you'll see advocacy goals on IEP uh, documents, you know, and in the group that I worked with, the itinerant teachers, we always had that. The student would be able to articulate your hearing loss, what accommodations and modifications the student needs. These things are really important for students to understand so that they can be more independent and be successful after high school. One of the things that I've noticed while reading the IEPs over the past few years and working with the special ed department is that they are advocating for students to be advocates themselves a lot more than they used to. Is that a change in the law or is that just kind of the movement of where special education is going these days? 
I would say that's just the movement from the field, the grassroots movement, the movement from researchers, the movement from people that teachers on the ground, you know, kind of advocating more for that. Kathleen, you've helped us review so many of the key principles and ideas in special education. Could you leave us with just a few thoughts on, um, on what you think educators, parents, students, what we should be thinking about to ensure that everyone gets a high quality education? If I could say one thing, that it would be to have high expectations. Parents having high expectations of their children, educators having high expectations of their students. I've referred to the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act several times in this podcast, and I've mentioned that the opening lines are that disability is part of the natural human experience. One thing that is also striking in the opening lines of IDEA is that Congress finds that since enacted in 1975, the outcomes or what Congress hopes that students with disabilities will accomplish, the benefits of special education services, which are economic self-sufficiency, full participation, independent living, and equality of opportunity. Those benefits, which I think we can all agree are very important, have been impeded by low expectations. And that's one of the major things that have impacted students with disabilities in reaching those goals. So just not putting limits on students, not putting limits on families, children, and reaching for the stars. We've seen in kind of the field so many students be able to do so many things that you wouldn't believe. Kathleen, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Where can our listeners find you or your work online? Let's see. I've got my publications, I think, a full list up on ResearchGate as well as Google Scholar. You can also visit my bio page on the Texas Christian University College of Education site. I have a Twitter account that's open. It's at Kathleen Kaiser. Perfect. Thanks again so much for joining us. And we definitely hope to continue the conversation online. Everyone can tweet Kathleen follow-up questions and she'll give you some responses, hopefully. And we'll continue those discussions and, and keep learning. Thank you. Thank you. At the Visions of Education podcast, we're all about sharing the learning. So why not tweet us and talk to us if you're doing something creative in education? Our Twitter handle is at Visions of Ed. We're also on Facebook, which is very exciting. So go ahead and do that. Also, if you haven't already, subscribe to Visions of Education on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever your heart desires. We will be there. And if you write us a five-star review, we will read it on the air. And please do so. It helps people find this podcast. Um, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretke. And I'm at 42ThinkDeep. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast signing off. <laughs>